From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Thank you very much, uh, Jenny. Um, as we said, uh, we are a sponsor of this evening, the Cranfield College of Aeronautics Alumni Association. It's a very long name, I'm afraid. Um, but we are obviously uh, alumni going back to 1946 when the College of Aeronautics was formed before becoming Cranfield Institute of Technology and, and now the university. Um, it's good to see so many of, of our master's students here today from Cranfield and one of the initiatives we've been taking at the Alumni Association is to provide low-key mentoring for our current students. Uh, so uh, if any of you are, uh, are more mature in the audience and might like to consider being a, a mentor for the, some of the students, it's not a very uh, committing task. Uh, Samina has got some forms which you can fill in after, after the lecture. So that's the, that's the advertising done. Um, uh, we're here this evening to honour Sir Frederick Handley Page and also to look at the future in aviation. Handley Page was a, a giant of the British aircraft industry, a pioneer uh, of design and manufacture. Uh, and uh, we know his famous air bomber aeroplanes of World War I and World War II and in the Cold War. Uh, he's had many links with Cranfield University he was a member of the Fedden Committee, which met in 1943, which set up the College of Aeronautics. Uh, and then he became uh, Chairman of Governors of the College of Aeronautics and was a governor until his death in 1962. And there is still a continuing link today because the last aeroplane that his company produced was the Jetstream. And the later version of the Jetstream we operate now from the university at, at the National Flight Laboratory Centre. So that, there's still a con current connection with Handley Page. But moving from the past and the present uh, to the future, we'll be hearing about one of the most important research programs, I think, in the world for the future of aviation, particularly aviation and the environment, uh, Clean Sky. And who better to present that than today's speaker? I'll give you a few background, bits of background to him. So Gareth is Vice President Research, it's written on the side there, Vice President Research and Technology, Business Development and Partnerships for Airbus. Uh, he's a chartered engineer and a fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society and an honorary graduate of Cranfield University. He served as a member of Cranfield's council between 2005 and 2012 and he's a member of this, the steering board for the Advisory Council for Aviation Research and Innovation in Europe, ACARE. I've been telling my students that we need to be meeting ACARE targets. I could never quite remember what ACARE stands for, but, but, but now you know. Uh, and he served as a, a board member of the governing body of Clean Skies. Um, in the past, he's been involved heavily in research and involvement in manufacturing and contributed to the establishment of the world-class A380 wing production facility at Broughton in, in Chester uh, and been involved in integrating lean aircraft since then prior to his current job. So he's well qualified to speak about aircraft but also being at the centre of a car and clean skies he can tell us what's happening. Thanks Gareth. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. 
know, as usual, uh, I'll look for acknowledgement somewhere at the back of the room that the microphone is working and you can hear me. Good, somebody's putting their thumbs up. So thank you very much indeed, John. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have the invitation to speak um, at this prestigious lecture. And it's always a pleasure to come to, uh, to London, to uh, the home of the Royal Aeronautical Society. Um, there is a lot of jargon around um, the research and technology field, a lot of um, three-letter acronyms, four-letter acronyms, clean sky, smart fixed wing, craw, blade. I'll start to uncover some of what they actually mean and hopefully give an insight to those of you who are less familiar with this area of work um, than me, a little bit of an insight into this world. Um, my purpose today is not to give a wholly technical lecture. It is to present the progress that is being made on this major programme. As John said, it's probably one of the most significant single programmes running in the world today, in the world of aerospace. And in fact, one could say in the world of applied sciences is one of the more significant. So let me just touch on how I intend to use the next 40 minutes or so. And I trust that that will meet the bill for most of you this evening. Um, a brief overview of the aviation market. There's nothing worse than coming to a lecture like this, which is billed at Clean Sky to have somebody then give you a lecture about how great their company is and how well it's doing in the marketplace. So I intend to keep that part of this presentation short. If you want to know more about Airbus, we've got a perfectly adequate website where you can find all the facts that you need to. Um, perhaps a little bit more obscure and therefore worthwhile paying a bit more attention to is the Clean Sky program. What is it? It's well known as a, as a, um, a brand, but what is it actually as a program? So I'll try and unveil a little bit of that. Then I want to focus in particular on technology demonstrations. What has it done and what is it doing? Is it a program which uh, prepares um, scientific papers and study reports? Well, as you'll, as you'll hear through the presentation, it isn't. It's very much about demonstration. There have been some significant demonstrations already within this program, which are maybe not so well known. And I'll go on to talk about a couple of the headline items. At the end, I, um, I will make no apologies for showing you a video. In fact, I'm quite excited to see it um, because it is prepared specifically to highlight some of the physical progress that is going on in the programme. And it will have some shots of uh, the wind tunnel tests and various other things that we're doing to prepare um, for the completion of Clean Sky. Um, and the picture paints a thousand words, so it's worthwhile seeing that video, even if I do attempt to cut out some of the introductory material, which may be less interesting for you. And I hope with all of that, we'll conclude after about 40 minutes or 45 minutes, so there's time for questions, should any of you have any. <coughs> Excuse me. So, the starting point, the context. Um, probably... Uh, Familiar for those of you who've been in the sector for a, a long time, maybe less familiar for some of the um, Cranfield members. Um, if we look at the world market for aerospace, we can see that, in fact, there's 5.8 billion people in 2009 in what we call the expanding regions, and 1 billion people in the more mature aerospace regions. 
Why that's interesting is in the mature market, the rate of growth is roughly 3.7%. But in that larger market, the rate of growth, the rate of demand is growing at 6.1%. So the basic message is 5.8 billion people will increasingly want to travel by air. So irrespective of what other dynamics are happening in this market, that's a very positive future that we can look forward to. Translated into another form, that means that effectively, as this chart shows year on year on year, that every 15 years, the aerospace market doubles. So there's not many other markets of any type or any description where there is that rate of growth into the foreseeable future. Now, it doesn't matter whether it's my company's general market forecast that you take or any other company that may wish to make a prediction of the future. There is a degree of consistency about all the participants showing this rate of growth. And indeed, the historic trend bears this out. So, we have a a strong demand for our products. Translated into other terms, that means for single-aisle type aircraft over the next 20 years, we could expect to deliver 20,000 aircraft. So if I were to consider there is currently a duopoly between Airbus and Boeing, roughly 50-50, that's a large number of aircraft to be made and delivered. Currently, to frame that, the production rate for single-aisle aircraft inside Airbus is rate 46, and our principal competitor has just announced a, a rate increase to a rate slightly higher than that. What does rate 46 mean? That means we are making and delivering 46 aircraft a month. And that's just in that segment of the marketplace. And it's growing. And the market's doubling every 15 years. So... It's a buoyant marketplace. In total, that market is valued at 3.9 trillion. I don't really know how many noughts that's got after it. But sufficient to say, it's a buoyant marketplace. What does that mean? Well, a statistic, there has to be one or two. For 2013, that meant that Airbus secured orders for 1,600 aircraft during that year, worth $225 billion dollars and delivered 626 aircraft worth $81 billion. That's just in 2013. So for those of you who have selected the aerospace industry to work in, can I congratulate you on making a very wise choice. (laughs) For the future, you have got a buoyant future to look forward to. (coughs) Excuse me. But I did say I wouldn't dwell too much on the marketplace. Let's look more generally at what drives aerospace innovation. There are three things. And of course we shouldn't forget that this is not an industrial market. It's in effect a market selling to passengers. If you or I prefer to take the train to Paris rather than the aircraft to Paris, those numbers are dented. Clearly, if one is going from Europe to America, there are few other choices. But in the regional market or on a continent, there are other choices and there will be increasing competition there. 
So we have to consider comfort, the additional services, differentiation. How much better is it now when you fly out of Heathrow that you don't have to switch your phone off and you don't have to take your headphones out? It's a small point, but it's a major irritant to customers. It makes it a better flying experience. It makes the whole flight experience more appealing. Of course, we have to be environmentally friendly. The worst possible case is that we double the volume of air traffic and we double the pollution. We double the noise, we double the CO2 emissions, we double the NOx emissions. Everything gets worse. Of course, that is not in the interests of this sector and this sector has been preeminent in providing technological solutions to address that point so that the market growth does not have a consequential impact on the environment. And last, and very deliberately uh, last, but not least, is efficiency. We have to secure that our customers, the airlines, meet all of these, see improvements in all of these characteristics in the way they operate our products. For the last 60 years, the average EBIT, that's earnings before interest and taxation, of the world's airlines has been 1%. A typical industrial company may be earning, aiming at 10% as a, a return. So if we don't help those airlines to make more profit by providing the right products, will that rate of growth continue? Probably not. So we have to pay serious attention to these efficiency factors. And of course it has the dual benefit that as you reduce direct operating costs by reducing fuel burn, guess what? You have a positive environmental impact. It's all pushing in the same direction. Probably nothing new for you there, but uh, it's an important multiplier effect that we get as a consequence of research in the aerospace sector. <coughs> Excuse me. So in general terms... The achievements over the last 40 years, I think, are well known. This is a well-reproduced graph. In terms of noise, we've had more than a 20 decibel improvement. In terms of efficiencies, over that period, a 70% reduction in fuel burn, a 70% improvement in CO2 emissions. Is that enough? Well, the Clean Sky programme is, as John mentioned, aiming to achieve the Akari targets. What are those targets? Well, those targets suggest, originally that there should be a 50% improvement reduction in CO2 emissions and an 80% improvement in NOx emissions. But in fact, ACARI revisited its target setting only a matter of about a year and a half ago. And guess what? The goals have changed. The goals have changed now so that the target is a 75% reduction in CO2 emissions and a 90% reduction in NOx why is that important? Well, nobody's ever heard of ACARI. Even John, who's steeped in the industry, struggles to recall what the acronym stands for. The important point about ACARI is it is a grouping of stakeholders from the industry or associated with the industry. So it's the manufacturers of aircraft, airplanes, systems, and the air traffic providers, and the airlines, and the relevant regulators and authorities, all of whom 
together meet to set targets for themselves. And believe me, they do not set unrealistic targets. They're intended to be stretching goals, but they're the goals which set the framework for the research that we need to do to improve in the aerospace sector. So back to the original Akari target for a 50% CO2 emission reduction. How might that come about? Well, interestingly, up to 10% of it could become, come about just by improving air traffic management. In fact, if airlines could fly where they wanted to fly in Europe, rather than having to take particularly arcane flight paths that the current national air traffic providers dictate they follow, there could overnight be a 10% reduction in fuel burn for airlines. This perhaps highlights the importance of a programme like CESAR, which is looking to optimise the operation of aircraft in European aerospace. And then we have a classic dilemma. For the remaining part of the target, how do we achieve it? Does the aircraft manufacturer achieve it? Or does the engine manufacturer achieve it? And of course, if both were to succeed in their claims for a 20% improvement, we would be overachieving the target. But we recognise the reality is that there are integration effects which have to be taken into account to secure that overall this 50% emission target is met. So, what is Clean Sky? Clean Sky is a programme of work which has been established by the European Commission. Well, sorry, with the support of the European Commission. In fact, it is a 1.6 billion euro programme where the European Commission invests 800 million and industry, companies like Airbus, invest the other 800 million. And the topics that they're investing in are shown, if I dare. So, green regional aircraft, smart fixed wing aircraft, green rotorcraft, engines, systems and eco-design, a variety of headline topics. But the one that I'll pay attention today to is smart fixed wing aircraft, with the total activities 393 million euros worth of activity. That's between 2008 and 2016. Now, not to jump ahead too far, but this programme has already been considered sufficient of a success that in the next round of European funding, the European Commission have decided to increase their degree of support in what is imaginatively called Clean Sky 2 for a very similarly structured programme which will now in total be 3.6 billions worth of activity with 1.8 billion euros worth of funding coming from the European Commission. So why is that considered a success? Perhaps I'll reveal that through the remainder of the programme. But my focus today will be on this smart fixed wing element. <laughs> Overall, it's important to note that the programme is not led by a single company. There are multiple participants, in fact, probably upwards of 350 participants in total. 50% are larger organisations that you would easily recognise. 25% are then smaller but significant enterprises 
or research centres who do not have such a large degree of funding to invest themselves. And lastly, 25% are secured by calls for proposals. So in other words, if you have a one-man company and you have a topic that you would like to research that you think is relevant to Clean Sky, you could win that package of work. And in fact, 40% of the people that win call for proposals are SMEs. 60% of them have never taken part in a European funded programme before. So this programme of work is not just for the big organisations. It's been very successful at drawing SMEs at drawing SMEs into the research framework. What is SmartFix Wing trying to do? It's trying to develop wing technologies and power plant integration in such a way as to improve performance and secure the targets we looked at earlier. And the first example of doing that is one that nobody's ever heard of. And that's the reason for bringing it to the table today. Because we, we are eagerly anticipating that Clean Sky will deliver something at some point in the future. But in fact, in 2010, there was a major programme of work on what was called the Advanced Lip Extended Acoustic Panel, which you can see illustrated here. So effectively, in this portion of the nacelle, where the work was conducted to move from TRL4 to TRL6 and validate the available technology at a full engine scale in operational conditions. And in particular, because getting to TRL6 means proving manufacturability and industrialisation as well, it's not just theoretical design, it's operation and industrialisation. That was a critical part of this piece of work. So in fact the first bit of Clean Sky technology has already flown in October 2010. Flight tested on an A380 with engine 3, the instrumented engine, and the reference engine being engine 2. And the full test was completed identifying no loads issues, no flutter issue on the fan, and proving the operation of that technology in a in operational conditions. Now why did I make that jump? I deliberately made that jump from something very theoretical, a schematic about how big organisations and small organisations can fit together. I've jumped to something very real, something on the aircraft and flying. Because that's the whole point about this programme. It's not to develop technologies which will stay on the shelf. It's to develop technologies which will fly and will improve the position in the marketplace of the European industry. <coughs> so I'll come perhaps to the flagship of Smart Fixed Wing, which is a programme called Blade. Conveniently, that's what Blade stands for. It may not be so obvious what it actually is, but the clue is at the outer wing of each of those two wings. Um, I'll describe what this piece of work is intending to do. 
But basically, by 2016, this aircraft will be flying to allow us to evaluate at full scale and in operational conditions the potential for achieving natural laminar flow on a representative structure. So what does it really mean? We're taking an A340-300, we're cutting the outer wing box off. For those of you who are familiar with the work package that's performed at GKN in Filton, that's effectively the break point. Um, so that outer wing box is being replaced by a new design and as you can see some considerable alterations are required to achieve that. In fact there will be two new designs. It would be a shame to uh, modify this aircraft and have the same design on each wing. So aerodynamically it's the same shape. But let's remember one thing here. We're talking about trying to test a laminar flow wing. When were the first experiments done on laminar flow technology? John? Can okay. On a Lancaster, is it? Okay. Well, I've seen a, a photograph of a Mustang from about 1946, which purported to do some work in this area. To what degree it was successful, I don't know. My point is, there is a long and distinguished history of work in this area, and one of the factors that has defeated operational usage is not our ability to design a laminar flow wing, it's our ability to make one and keep it in a laminar condition throughout its operational performance. So here we're going to take the same aerodynamic form and make the wing in two different ways to establish whether or not it can meet that real test of operational performance. This is not Airbus doing this work. I emphasise this is the, the Clean Sky Consortium of Partners. So, for example, Dassault are designing and developing the fairing. Incas in Romania have scheduled the trailing edge structure. The wingtip is produced by Air Nova in Spain. The left-hand wing cover is produced by Saab. The right-hand wing cover was an open call for a proposal, which was won, won by GKN in the UK. So quite a, a mix, a melange of organisations coming together in a research environment to prepare this flight test specimen. And again, it's not just a laboratory experiment. Some test and trial panels produced by Saab for their particular contribution to this, which is a top skin panel for a wing which incorporates an integrated leading edge. For those of you who are less familiar with this technology, normally you would have a flat panel at a break approximately where I'm showing, then an access panel, and then a Dino's leading edge. In other words, at least two joints to disrupt the laminar flow over the wing surface. A fairly simple idea in theory. Of course, what aids that laminar flow? Not having too many bolts, rivets and fasteners, 
through that upper surface to disrupt that laminar flow. So we can make a panel, that's easy. Can you attach that panel to the structure without disrupting the laminar performance? Well, that again gets more interesting, doesn't it? So that was a test panel. Here are the full-size tooling, which is now underway, and Saab will be making those parts in August of this year. The C-Maturity design review was completed in April. GKN, I mentioned, are also adding innovations. And in this case, a particular technology, which may be known to some of you with a manufacturing background, of additive layer manufacturing. That piece part is made as a single component. Could you make that using conventional manufacturing techniques? And if you could, would you understand how it performed? And if it performed, could you afford the weight it would cost you? So by introducing new manufacturing technologies, we're able to secure some innovative designs in the trailing edge to secure what's required. Maybe less obvious here, on a wing ground-based demonstrator, Airbus will be in testing an, an innovative Kruger um, device to act, I've, I'm a little ahead of myself here, but it's effectively to act as a decontaminant or a, a contamination protection device for reasons that I'll explain a little later. But if you're looking to install this Kruger device in the leading edge of the wing, in fact, at the outer wing area of an A340 aircraft, your wing isn't so deep. Your opportunity for having um, moving surfaces at that point is somewhat constrained. You've got to get innovative about how you design and install those components. Again, an interesting and fertile ground for research work, but practically realised. So when you're looking at the leading edge of a natural laminar flow wing, maybe you do need to install new devices onto that leading edge, and therefore maybe you need to get clever about the systems you use in conjunction with those moving devices. It's no longer an aerodynamics problem. It's now a structures problem, it's now a systems problem, and it's a manufacturing problem to achieve natural laminar flow. So to convince you that the design is progressing, and in fact the C-Maturity design review was in April as I mentioned, here we have a schematic taken from the digital mock-up, the engine, the outboard engine, the conventional wing, the fairing, and the revised outer wing. An interesting prospect in terms of a research programme, because that is not one company's design. And in fact, that is not one company's intellectual property. By virtue of this being a, um, a research programme, each company invests, each company learns, each company develops its technology, and importantly, they learn how to integrate those technologies into the totality of the vehicle. And sometimes it works, generally as it has done with the outer wing box, and sometimes it doesn't. We got to a very advanced state in designing 
a pod which would fit on top of the fuselage and contain instrumentation to then allow us to measure the performance of the wings. When that degree of design was completed, we came to understand the um, low speed characteristics of the aircraft were so detrimentally affected, we could design and make the vehicle, we probably couldn't get it off the ground. Not really much good as a flight test demonstrator. So one partner is very disappointed because their investment in that work is not going to be exploited. And at a fairly late stage in the programme, we have to look for an alternative means of satisfying the same objective. How do you measure whether the flow of air over the wings is laminar at 30,000 feet? Well, you obviously don't get out your slide rule at that, that height. You have to be fairly clever in terms of the techniques that you employ. And that is another part of the research programme which I'll come on to. So, Air Nova, the Spanish company, are doing very well in terms of advancing their structure development. Perhaps in the in mindful of time, I won't dwell on that. But just to highlight, this is not about providing a research programme which has a a test specimen which is tested in a lab. It has to be attached to the aircraft. How do you cut the outer wing off an aircraft and install a new one and maintain the flight characteristics of that aircraft in an adequate condition to fly it? For any of you from an industrial background, that's a research project in its own right. The metrology involved in that is horrendous. Horrendous, sorry. Challenging. <laughs> Exciting, if you've got a research frame of mind. So here we come to more and more and more facets of engineering become necessary to achieve this end objective of have we got a laminar flow wing. So I mentioned about contamination protection. Laminar flow is very sensitive to contamination, sufficient to say insect debris splattered all over the leading edge of your wing will disrupt laminar flow. Imagine that. You've now got a 15 metre section of wing. You get a bug go splat on the front of it and you've lost your laminar flow. So we're into now coating technologies. What can you do in terms of coating technology to prevent bug adhesion? What can you do with alternative mechanisms to protect the vehicle? And what happens if you can only guarantee laminarity to a customer at certain times of year and operating from certain airfields because there are no insects in those airfields at that time. How complicated does that become as a proposition? So clearly this needs resolving at a fundamental level and protection mechanisms have been investigated and are being tested and will be applied. I came on to flight test instrumentation just very briefly. The solution we've selected, instead of sticking a pod on top of the fuselage, we will adapt the vertical tailplane and install a variety of instrumentation there to allow us to effectively monitor the outer wing box in flight to understand whether the flow is laminar or not.
So for those of you who are used to conducting experiments in a wind tunnel to determine whether flow is laminar or not, you will fully appreciate the challenges in doing that practically in flight on an aircraft. Some novel metrology techniques, some novel instrumentation techniques are involved. One which I particularly like because I've only discovered it really in the last three months in preparing for this presentation is item F on the slide. I'm not sure that you can see it at this point, Jenny. The waviness of the structure becomes important. When you look out of the window on your EasyJet flight going on holiday to Tenerife, you'll start to see quilting, as it's called, on the upper surface of the wing. There's a distortion in the structure. How much of an impact does that distortion have? Well, we need to be able to measure what that distortion is. So one of the sophisticated elements of instrumentation that's being employed is arrays of potentiometers installed inside the wing skin to understand what degree of movement or perturbation there is to that structure in flight. So as well as measuring it from the outside, we're measuring it from the inside. We'll be using an infrared system to um, monitor the performance of the outer wing box. This has got challenges in its own right. We're using two infrared cam cameras, one per wing. Some clever windows installed in the vertical tailplane. And then there's all sorts of requirements there for calibration of those cameras to secure that when we're taking those readings, we actually understand the data that we're receiving back from this test specimen. You don't want to do that for the first time at 30,000 feet. So we have a program of de-risking which is underway with DLR and an organisation called FTI, where some preliminary work is being done on the ground secure, to secure that that instrumentation works effectively. All of this builds up to the fact that blade is just a test specimen. Remember, what we really want to do is find out, does it provide the data we need to understand natural laminar flow? So this test specimen is scheduled to fly for approximately six months, 150 hours of flight test, opening up the boundaries of flight clearly, but then looking for all the various data sets that our engineering teams need to understand whether that laminarity has been achieved. And importantly, to understand whether the modelling we're predicting for laminarity is actually borne out in practice. And if not, of course, what are the variations and where, what are their causes? Probably the programme of work is less of interest for you, but just to suffice to say, parts are being made now, assembly starts next year, installation into the aircraft is complete by the end of 2016, and we have a flying test specimen coming to a town near you sometime in late 2016, early 2017. This has stopped being a research programme and it started being a first flight programme. How do we get a first flight? That's a very interesting transition for research organisations to make. You stop asking questions and you start getting into delivery mode. It's quite a different way of working. 
quite a challenge for some. <coughs> so I, I'll cover the second topic in the remaining few minutes that I have, which is open rotor. Now, open rotor always causes excitement, um, and I think unnecessarily so. Open rotor as a technology, again, has been around for a long time, some notable challenges in terms of noise and vibration. Airbus is interested to investigate this technology for application on some future product at some point after 2030. I'll just repeat that date. After 2030, so nobody gets too excited and says, this is going to be on an aircraft tomorrow. It will not be. The point is, if we don't prepare now, it'll never be on an aircraft. So the point here is to undertake work to understand what is an open rotor, does the potential of a 15% reduction in fuel burn actually get borne out in reality? And could it be a candidate technology for the next generation of aircraft? So to emphasise, it's a research programme. There are different options that are available, but we need to understand those options, what the risks are and what the opportunities are before implementing on them on an aircraft. The first part of this research programme is what are the certification rules for an open rotor vehicle? How do you know what constraints you're designing to before you invest a lot of effort into the design process? So a strange starting point for a research programme, but an essential one. In terms of our efforts, we've got past that point of understanding the certification rules. Those have been discussed and uh, um, agreed with the FAA, the CAA and the other major players in the industry. So the basis of certification of an open rotor product is now understood. Whether any product can meet that basis is a challenge, but the basis for certification is understood. So we're progressing through numerical simulations, wind tunnel tests and various sets of design and analysis on both the propellers, on the aircraft handling qualities, and noise, noise being the killer in the previous instances of this type of technology. Interesting question for Akari. If you can get 15% reduction in fuel burn and 15% less CO2, are you prepared to put up with more noise? Thankfully, it's a dilemma we don't have to meet, for reasons I'll explain later. But it's the sort of compromise which may need to be made at some point in the future when installing some of these technologies. So our focus at this stage in the development of this technology is to obtain high-quality data so we can make confident decisions in the future about whether this technology could be applied in reality. And when I say we... I mean the partners in this programme, Airbus, Rolls-Royce, Safran. This is not purely an airframers discussion. So we're looking at power systems, at instrumentation and models. And in this case, making the transition from models which are in a DMU, digital, to physical models. In this case, a two-ton model with a five-metre span for flying in the wind tunnel. At low speed and at high speed. 
I won't dwell on these pictures because there's some more of it in the video that I'll show. We've looked at just the, the rotors, just the pylon and the full aircraft to understand importantly what those noise signatures are. The key point is gather good quality data. The great news is that the data so far suggests a vehicle equipped with these engines could be at least as quiet as today's A320. Now whether that fully satisfies future noise regulations, again, maybe a debating point, but no noisier than today's vehicles. So we have a strong interest to continue this work into future programmes, and I mentioned Clean Sky 2. How do you test such an engine? Well, the route to test this, this engine is to install it on a, a vehicle, an A340, and install it into the fuselage, as shown here. So, in fact, we maintain the four existing engines on the vehicle and install the open rotor adjacent to the fuselage to test its operational characteristics again. Noise, performance, interaction with the airframe. So, at this point, I'm going to take a risk and show you a video... telling me my time's up. And I'm going to try and short, no, I'm shorten the video, not that much, I beg your pardon. Try and move the video along a little bit because there's a bit of introductory stuff at the beginning. But I hope this will help you to understand a little more about the targets for SmartFix Win and the sort of issues that it's addressing. <coughs> because basically we foresee that with laminar flow there is considerable potential for drag reduction. From, airfield, from Cranfield, you shouldn't need telling about that, I guess. You will have heard many lectures from John and other colleagues I, I would anticipate to confirm that. But combined with this aim of natural laminar flow, we're looking at how to adapt control surfaces to suit this characteristic how to make those surfaces with very tight geometrical tolerances, what are the appropriate materials to use when making those surfaces, and then what surface coatings do we have to secure that those surfaces remain in the condition that is expected throughout the life of the vehicle.
close to what the aircraft is actually going to look like. Of course, in the, in the characterizations that I've shown you so far, all we can see is the outer surface of the vehicle. Suffice to say that there's a huge amount of instrumentation inside this vehicle. And as all of you will appreciate, if you start to drill holes in that laminar flow surface in order to install the instrumentation to measure the laminar flow, the first thing you've done is destroy that laminar flow. So we have to look at non-intrusive means to measure that laminar flow. And here tested with uh, previous vehicles. So we're establishing the principles and understand how we would handle it at a larger scale. There's others in the, uh, in the audience here today who are far more qualified to talk to this section of the, uh, the video than I am, so I'll resist speaking about it. Dougie, if you want to mention any points as we go through, feel free. The point probably is to highlight that, again, this is not a research programme which is being done in isolation or just as a set of theoretical studies. There is significant engineering effort being applied to understand these characteristics, whether they be from an analytical basis or an experimental basis in the wind tunnel, or finally in an experimental basis actually in flight. Excuse me. As a consequence, it's probably easy to see where your 393 million euros goes. When you first see that number, it sounds like a very, very big number. You see the amount of work that is being performed by the range of companies that are involved actually starts to look like quite good value for money. I would contend. So ET, ETW, for those of you who aren't familiar, is the European Transonic Wind Tunnel, which um, is located in Cologne, but is 25% owned by the UK government. At least 25% owned by the UK government. provides a particular characterisation on the surface of the vehicle to encourage the right flow of air over that vehicle. In fact, in essence, it's a technology associated with the application of paint. And it's disarming, disarmingly simple in its description. You apply a particular treatment to a surface, you install characteristics like this at a very small scale on the surface and it, it improves the predictability of airflow over that surface. 
again try applying that in the industrial environment what happens when the air when the airline maintains that vehicle strips all the paint off and wants to repaint the aircraft how do you provide an industrially valid solution that's why you saw Lufthansa involved in the test program there This section of the video largely goes to confirm that there is a big model. I don't think there's any great insights to be gained from actually seeing the, the work that's being performed at this stage. But uh, the, the key point probably is that there are a variety of such models produced to operate in different wind tunnels around Europe to evaluate different characteristics of the um, open rotor vehicle as I mentioned earlier on in the demonstration. I know Cranfield has seven wind tunnels, I don't think one of them is quite this big. Again of course we have to in these models model the operation of the engine. So we actually have to operate these rotors using air motors in the same manner as which they would operate were they um, operated by a more conventional power source. So there's a challenge just in the design and manufacture of the wind tunnel model itself before one starts operating it in the various different configurations that you'll see illustrated in this wind tunnel test. I've been to DNW in the Netherlands to see the um, the testing that's performed there and believe me it's quite frightening the the sheer power that is required first of all to operate the wind tunnel test and secondly to operate the model itself then how do we test it as I mentioned earlier on this is probably a slightly better illustration we're going to take an A340 aircraft install it on the back of the vehicle and then we'll be able to understand the integration between the engine and the cabin. Picture this, would you like to be sitting in the cabin next to that engine? So there are some characteristics of far field noise which are important for that vehicle and actually cabin noise which are similarly important for that vehicle. Here the illustration again of the blade demonstrator which will fly 2016. So I'm pleased to say with that our flagship demonstrator I conclude this presentation. Thank you very much for your time and attention. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. 
This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.